Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cartoon Pad. I'm really looking forward to this episode. We have a special guest. Uh, Michael, how are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. How are you? Good. And a trusty producer, Marty, is in the air. Marty, how are you? I am good. I am in sunny Florida, South Florida, just on the beach. I came up from the beach. Hi, Marty. And set up my microphone that I trucked all the way down here in the event that we had pond sandy and covered in copper tone. But I'm ready to go. I'm ready to talk about cartoons. Well, I suggest we dive right in and let's bring our guest in. Uh, Michael, I'm going to give you the honors of uh, welcoming our, our next guest. Sure. Uh, I just about to say that Marty even sounds tan. That is from Fran Lebowitz. Oh, I just made that up. Hey, you know, who is that? In her book, she said, you sound audibly tan. Can't remember the essay. Uh, But she's one of Thurber's greatest uh, flag bearers. That's good to know, because the person talking to us at this moment is a noted American poet, artist, scholar, author, editor, illustrator, essayist, dog lover, and enthusiastic ornithologist. He's been conjoled into joining us primarily because of his impressive efforts as the editor and scholar humor of humor and cartooning, particularly of our uh, of one James Thurber. So let's all welcome Mr. Michael J. Rose. Thank you. I'm totally honored to be among the crew here. So Bob, you'd like to start us off on a moment of tribute. And I think it's only appropriate that it be led. Well, I was just saying that uh, what's appropriate is that Michael, he seems to have done everything. And one of the things he has done is studied animal behavior. And the first thing I think of when I think of uh, the great Ed Corrin, who just passed away last week, is how he turned uh, his furry animals and uh, depicted our human faults and all our different uh, foibles. And he was uh, able to humanize this whole world. And he was amazing, Ed. Uh, Michael, um, I know you don't know Ed personally, but uh, chime in about animal behavior here. Um, Are you familiar with his cartoons? Oh, absolutely. I mean, his shagginess, uh, and I really do think it's a sort of hirsute world that lived in where I, I genuinely feel he recognized the animal nature in humans that, you know, we can put on all the pretensions we want. But uh, I think that uh, Ed and Thurber in, in a great extent saw the natural world as much more exuberant than just our pettiness and, uh, you know, commercial longings. No, well said. He was um, a really great guy, too. He was a very sweet man. 
I worked with him on a couple of projects and uh, we did some talks together. And um, he always had this, uh, this great gift for be able to see how we could take something and uh, we could turn it on its head and then turn it into something very funny at the same time. It's one thing to have like an observation about human behavior, but then to make it hysterical is is something else. And um, when I was editing books, I was uh, I was working for a publisher called um, Princeton Architectural Press, and I oh. had um, the job of cartoon editor for a group of books. And at that time, I was seeing thousands of submissions from different cartoonists, and it was a very telling process because people would send me all these large batches, and I would see their sketches, and I would see then who was really talented and some people who maybe were not at the same level as someone like Ed, Ed would send in these batches of, um, of sketches. It seemed like every single sketch was a home run. And um, it was just amazing. I mean, there's a lot of people who, who also fell into that category and made me feel like I was a total amateur as I saw all these big batches. And actually uh, my co-host, Michael was one of the people who, who would send me in these batches and it was difficult to choose which of the cartoons I was going to include of his as well in the, in the books. Um, and then other oh, people. Oh, used... Bob, stop. Just stop. <laughs> but uh, it was a very telling thing. And uh, you know, that those books, by the way, were by, done by invite. What I did was it was sort of a vanity project in which I had people who I knew personally and people whose work I really appreciated and people who I felt I could deal with on a business level because I would be dealing with all these different uh, entanglements. And so it wasn't an open call for those who was wondering if I, you know, why I didn't invite them. It was more of a, of a personal project. And I did know Ed at that time. And I did know that Ed was a, a total gentleman. And so um, it was great to have the honor to know him. And I think that's, you know, uh, Bobby's a very nice guy, and we were on a panel together, you and me and Ed. Yeah. And he was talking, like, at the Rockwell Museum. The Norman Rockwell Museum. Yes. Personally. And he was talking about what a joy cartooning was and what a privilege and how he just felt blessed every time he could draw a cartoon. And I said, no, cartooning is torture. It's hell. That's where humor comes from, torture and hell. And he said, why are you here, please? <laughs> Could I have security? Anyway, his style, I found his style very itchy, but his content very uh, uh, benign. So there was a real kind of, kind of a, not a disconnect, but a, a conflict with his very frenetic kind of look, but his very kindly approach to humor. Yeah, he also he just introduced a different world where people can get excited about something they hadn't seen before. Mr. Rosen, do you think that would be the case with James Thurber when he first came on the scene as being someone whose style was so unfamiliar with people that they were feeling like they were getting in on the latest thing? Oh, there's so many ways to approach that. First, I, I do have to say, inimitable, I would apply to Edward Corn. You turn the page of the New Yorker, you'd know it was his, you'd run to it and read the caption. George Booth, the late, uh, great George Booth, another animal person. You would see the line and you would anticipate what did that loony family and those cats and dogs uh, uh, proliferate this week. Um, Thurber 
I think it's, I, I feel it's always my duty to say before Thurber, there was only great draftsmanship. You know, cartoons in the New Yorker prior to Thurber were well drawn. They were handsomely executed. They were um, done by people who were schooled. They intended to do a cartoon, whereas Thurber didn't really intend to. He had this notion of pre-intentional. I don't know what I'm drawing. I'm just kind of drawing um, his idol. You know, his bodily uh, cranial idol was very high. So he was he was writing and drawing partly because he had a photographic memory, you know, all the time without the idea that I'm going to uh, refine what I'm doing. I'm going to sketch and then I'm going to ink. He basically, you know, came out of the gate uh, as himself. And it's also important to remember that at the time, most people submitted images and the cartoon committee, the art, the art committee would banter about possible captions. So it wasn't a cartoonist submitting a finished cartoon to an editor who would say, I like it, I'll publish it. It was more uh, a rapport or an ongoing exchange that was required. And when Thurber first started publishing, he received thousands of letters, uh, Care of the New Yorker, and uh, Harold Ross insisted that he answer all of them. And the gist of each and every one was, why are you publishing the mad work of this man? My granddaughter can do this. And Thurber would answer with a various uh, a variation on, yes, she could, but she hasn't been through as much. And that sounds just like a glib answer. But Michael, Mr. Shaw alluded to that in that there is something that's required to be able to get you to spring forward into humor. There's no there's no spring in the board unless there's some uh, give, some loss, some frustration. Um, and I think Thurber is is in the same breath as Duchamp or Kandinsky or Andy Warhol, people saw work and said, what, what, why is this, why is this good? Why is this art? Why is this cartooning? I mean, he can't even draw, you know, Dorothy Parker would say, he's drawing cookies. He's drawing unbaked cookies. Uh, Half-baked cookies. Half-baked cookies. Oh, please. Now I want to say, I want to say before <laughs> Thurber, the New Yorker cartoons all had something fairly in common in that they weren't funny. They were old school. They were kind of labored. And I think Arno was the first, the real puncher of the group. And he was a great draft. But Thurber kind of fell out of the sky like Mr. Bean cartooning. I mean, he was a nervous doodler. And then him and I, I saw this picture of Evie, him and E.B. White in a office the size of a closet and yes Thurber has filled every every nook and cranny with a dog because he needs something to do while he's smoking and it's too early to drink <laughs> so here goes Thurber and he's just drawing <laughs> shit he doesn't care dog cat 
you know, Angel. And then here's here's uh, E.B. White picking them up and inking them while he's not looking and submitting them. So there's this whole little narrative I have in my head of how Thurber was born, his, you know, birth. Perfectly said. I mean, Thurber would steal notepads from the other folks in the New Yorker office or would fill them up with drawings so that when they take off the top page yeah. to take a note, there were already drawings there. But you're, you're right to say Thurber not only released the uh, art form of the cartoon from formality, premeditation, and training into something more spontaneous, or he liked the word pre-intentional. But your point is the style of earlier New Yorker cartoons was either a sort of banal dialogue, uh, he says this, she says that, or one of them, and I have the the book of um, that accompanied the exhibit that I curated at the Columbus Museum of Art, A Mile and a Half of Lines, and, you know, there's a cartoon of of two women in a in a cab looking out the window by Leonard Dove from 28. And the comment is, I think this New York traffic is terrible. If this had been in any other city, we would have been at Times Square long before now. <laughs> oh, I chortled at that it's one. A, it's something of a chortle, isn't I it? I chortled. <laughs> <laughs> well, but but you're but as you're saying, uh, Carl Rose uh, started to veer away from that, and Thurber, for the most part, there are one-liners. One person is speaking, and it's um, in some ways an unexpected observation, and that it's partly that because. He would draw, just as you say, continuously. And then he would sort of look and say, well, what have I drawn here? I was trying to do a couch and it turned into a bookcase. <laughs> I thought this was a staircase, but now it's there's a well, my favorite one is the is the uh, I think if I can remember the caption here. Um, is it the woman on the bookcase? Well, there's the woman on the bookcase. Oh, OK, I was trying to do a mind meld. Uh, but but I was thinking of there. The, the, there's a man in the bar and um, and he drew the legs too short. So he drew another man underneath and said and the person next to him is saying something like um, you and your horsey can <laughs> had enough of you and your horsey. You know, just just that idea that the that the humor came from the predicament, not from. Uh, the conceptualization. But Michael, was it also because he was being unpredictable? Was he the first cartoonist whose setup was had the humor coming from the fact that there was sort of a surprise and there was some kind of juxtaposition of objects that don't quite usually go together? So there was that because that's where laughter comes from sometimes now, where you're unpredictable and you you expect something and then boom, there's a curveball. He. Definitely uh, enjoyed the idea of misalignment. And, you know, I, I mean, it's also important to remember that Thurber jumped into the world at a moment that right now we can't even imagine any naivety around. For example, nudism, you know, sexual openness, uh, young, and uh, the idea of the id, 
Um, you know, remember that this was prohibition and the depression and, you know, between the wars. And so um, trying to make light in that in that moment uh, was a daunting, uh, if not daunting, a dampening, you know, um, alcohol and uh, socializing. I mean, that's what you did. You went to a cocktail party. You went to a dinner. You went to a speakeasy. You and women weren't necessarily at the speakeasy. So the idea of the Thurber cartoons where there's where there are men, you know, uh, uh, it's it's almost hard for us to understand the humor involved when yes. Thurber introduced a lady into a bar scene. That that irrespective of the caption was let's horrible. not let's not forget he was a half half blind alcoholic with a uh, touchy thyroid. Well, that the, the thyroid wasn't always the case, but you know when he started at the New Yorker, he saw perfectly well. In the sense that you know the one eye that wasn't damaged by the arrow. Uh, as a, you know, as a youngster, um, you know, allowed him to have handwriting that was legible and he could use the typewriter and he could draw what he wanted to draw. Um, it's as the progressive deterioration of the other eye occurred uh, between, uh, you know, 40 and 51 that uh, he lost the ability to compose on the typewriter to compose legibly. Um, and uh, we can trace the, de the decline of his sight uh, by looking at, at letters. Um, now, of course, he dictated to his secretary or to his his wife, Helen, but his, his manuscripts were primarily uh, or until the until the end, he still tried to to cram words in pencil on a yellow page, and you can document twenty five words per page. Sorry, uh, hundred words per page, twenty five words per page, twelve words per page, and only he would like to say that only Helen and one of his you know uh, uh, long suffering secretaries could actually read the documents. And likewise, he began to require aids to draw. Uh, he wore a Zeiss loop to magnify. He tried um, an- uh, I have one right here. Um, sword, oh no, that's a, that, no, that's a, that's, that's a, that's, yeah, that's a, an alcohol related purchase there. That's a martini shaker, ah. All right. He also uh, had a fabulous memory, I think, that people don't, I mean, that are, that's legendary. Photographic. He could, he could be at a party and his wife would tell him, Thurber, stop writing. And he would be able to dictate. He says 2,000 words, which was basically, you know, eight pages with all of the punctuation at a sitting. Uh, he used to call his, his mind a whore's top drawer. I, I love that. I don't actually know what's in a horse top drawer, but oh, I can tell you. Oh, okay. horse stuff. Horrors have lots of stuff. <laughs> uh, but he he relied on that in a way that many others uh, would have been perplexed. Ended. They wouldn't have had a means of composition. So I think that too, as you point out, is remarkable, and it's also the reason that 
Thurber failed to produce one big lasting work. <laughs> and he was baleful about this, his life, his entire life. He tried some novels. He tried other plays. And when people say that Thurber uh, has, has not held in the canon the way some others have, it's mainly because there was never a gr one great work that would allow scholars to um, and biographers to really hold to that. And humor, as all of us here know, maybe not our producer, Marty, but, um, you know, humor is, is, is not held to the same high standards of awards and book sales and so forth. That said, in the 40s, Thurber was the best known, most read American author in the world. I just want to interject right now that Marty Dundix is the American standard for immaturity, and he holds that. Okay. He holds that standard high. But he has a publishing program that I saw that. <laughs> so I, I apologize for even suggesting. Otherwise. That's all right. Not Apology at all. Not at all. Everything's fine. No, we love him. seeing him get insulted. So I uh, I didn't realize that he wrote The Secret Life. All right. Marty, Amazing. you can leave. You can leave <laughs> now. Go get in the car. That's the only thing that people. That's, that's what, what put him. Isn't that it's what a, put him over the a, top financially? It's a great story it's a great story it's been adapted so many times you know um it one of my little litmus tests as i've grown older i started when the thurber house where james thurber lived from um 1914 uh, to 1917 during his college years um we began restoring that i had come from columbia university with my poetry degree and all the money that that conferred upon me, Bob, uh, and uh, began work as an illustrator for the Thurber House. My first job was doing their signage and their logo and their programs. Long story short, I didn't know much about Thurber, but that became my uh, particular job. But at that moment, you know, Thurber had only been dead 20 years and uh, he was still very much in the in the conversation. And over the 20 years that I spent there, and now it's 20 more years since I haven't been there, um, Thurber is not known to not just this generation, but the previous generation. And I and I find myself, I've had cataract surgery in both of my eyes and a bunch of, you know, so when I go and I get the, the nice tech who wants to, you know, let me read the numbers, I can't help but say, do you know who James Thurber is? And they're going, no, no. Well, and I explain who he is. And then I said, well, one of my favorite cartoons of his is a man with a pointer uh, pointing at the letters on a chart and an elderly woman with a little bun sitting on a chair 20 feet away. And the caption is, of course, I can read that. It's seven H's and a seahorse. Oh. And, and they all kind of like go, oh. Okay, I have to ask a question, Mr. Rosen. When did you contract Thurberitis? So did you know anything about him when you applied to the Thurber house? I, I'm kind of fascinated by how this all unfolds. I knew what a general person growing up in the 60s and 70s uh, would have read 
we we read a few stories, we read a few fables. We I'm not sure I saw cartoons. My parents were not literary people. We, you know, in Columbus, Ohio, where Thurber lived, we did not subscribe to the New Yorker or any other magazine for that matter. Um, and so when I when I came to the Thurber House, I came to be on a grant to be their design consultant. I had been publishing illustrations in the New Yorker, uh, not cartoons, just spots that uh, were very popular in the, you know, in, in a part of their history. I think they do very few um, now, but uh, I, while I was at Columbia, I started drawing and dropped off a portfolio of illustrations, not thinking myself any sort of Thurber or cartoonist. To the art director? To the art director. Who was that? A lady. A lady. Do you know that? Please. Uh, can't say her name. Uh, Don't say it. I, I can't remember. It's but in the horse. We'll keep that in the horse top drawer. Don't worry. <laughs> but I was shocked that I dropped off. And immediately the same day, I dropped off work at, the, at Gourmet Magazine. And both of them bought drawings. And I thought, okay, this is how I'm going to support myself since poetry did not come. <laughs> with money. So and you, actually, never, you never had a go at cartooning? Never. Wow. I mean, I think I think of humor uh, as a, a mainstream in my life. My father, in particular, we told jokes at the dinner table. We didn't talk politics. I don't think we even knew that there was such a thing as politics. We didn't discuss, you know, homework and how was how was hey how was work dad because dad was a controller for an auto parts chain so i don't think he would have had anything he could have said like well brake shoes were really up on the brake shoes this week i mean so um he told jokes and he had accents and we would be excited if we heard a joke at school to come and tell and uh inevitably the the linchpin would be We'd do one sentence and dad would go, uh-huh. I said, oh, have you heard this one? No, no. And then we tell the joke and the answer was, well, I heard a little different. Of course he knew it. And the segue to that is simply that humor has been a vital part of my uh, worldview. And I think Thurber uh, took over for my father in many ways in that he was a... Uh, night-blooming monologuist, according to uh, one of his friends, you know, given a couple, given a couple, you know, drinks in a, an attentive crowd, he would hold forth and he minted his stories. So uh, not just the my life and hard times kinds of stories, uh, which are a perfect product of that mentality, but he would hold forth, um, and many times he would redraw a cartoon called Thurber and Company, where Thurber has his hands above his head, you know, with disheveled sort of hair, uh, you know, uh, pontificating, and everybody else, you know, is sort of sleeping or nodding off. Uh, and that has to do with this photographic memory and his, his uh, ability to hear voices, his mother, was uh, often, he often attributed his mother to his comedic sense. She often did antic 
uh, things in the neighborhood, pranks and and uh, quirky things. He he documented one of them uh, in his book, uh, the Thurber album, maybe my favorite, being a dog person, where uh, Aunt Marjorie didn't care for dogs at all. And so prior to her visit, she rounded up the neighborhood dogs and put them in the basement and then asked uh, asked Aunt to, you know, um, could you call could you call the dog and have them come up for for, you know, um, call Rex and have him come up for, for dinner. And she's, you know, squealing that she's being uh, mobbed by, uh, you know, uh, a, a rush of dogs just as a a wrong a wrongdoing. I had a question. Yeah. Oh, talk to me. I just want to interject that so people know that Michael has written um, a mile and a half lines, The Art of James Thurber. So we're going to discuss your other books, but I do want to mention that one of your, is it not your last book that you did was about James Thurber? Um, on the, on the, oh, I can never remember how to do it. What's 100 plus 25 Susquebs, Susquepensenten, whatever it is. Um, Susquehannas. Yeah. That's Algonquin. I'm sorry. So I for for the podcast audience at home, I am holding Mr. Rosen's book, which is fabulous. And I I uh he he's how many how many uh Thurber pieces have you edited as far as books? There are there are six books of James Thurber's either uncollected or unpublished works. So when I came on board with the Thurber House, I metamorphosed from their designer into their sort of literary program person because I was primarily a writer. And we began to conceptualize programs. Columbus, Ohio, at the time, 1982, there was no such thing as going to hear an author read. There were no readings. You didn't think of that as a cultural event like the ballet or going to the symphony. You know, if you were going to hear someone read, it would be in the basement of Denny Hall at OSU and you would be a student and it would, you know, and there would be cookies afterwards. Uh, we, we, and bookstores likewise weren't hosting events. Bookstores were just bookstores where you got books. Um, and so we conceptualized a writer in residence program, um, an evenings with authors, we called it. Um, and we focused on humor, but we also focused on nationally known writers that were um, available to come and speak. Uh, so we cultivated the taste by which we wanted to be uh, appreciated. So I met the Thurber family, who were both donors and, and of course, avid supporters of the institution. And over, you know, the first couple of years, I began to look at the Thurber works in the personal archive of his daughter, Rosemary Thurber. And uh, I think in 1989, we pulled together what I felt were um, the most interesting pieces about kind of about Thurber. So there was no real fiction. Um, there were cartoons, but they were primarily his personal essays and his humor that had to do with the writing life, the life in theater, the life of cartooning. Uh, my editor at HarperCollins felt that we really needed 
uh, you know, that kind of uh, spring back into uh, publishing for the last. Was, sorry, was that collecting himself? That was collecting himself. That's okay, sir. That is a great book. It has some marvelous, really marvelous insights into the cartooning process of uh, of the New Yorker. You know, the art committee, um, the editing process of the New Yorker, and it was. Um, I mean, the New Yorker has was always sort of its own thing. Uh, the way that they went about, you know, editing and soliciting articles and paying authors and and keeping people on retainer with money and uh, and so that that was Thurber wasn't always a, a you know a best loved person. In fact, much of his grief came as the regimes changed, and he was not. Uh, uh, publishing as frequently and was not writing things that say William Sean or um, um, yeah, the other guys uh, might have uh, been. So no, it was, it was interesting because I don't think people appreciate what a, there was the Holy Trinity of Thurber white and uh, Parker. And then there was Harold Ross and Thurber was hired to be the general manager. He was supposed to be Ross's next Jesus. And he was supposed to run the magazine. And he could not do that to save his life. And then he, Harold Ross said, I'm going to do my Harold. Just get in there with a white and start writing. And, you know, then he became a writer. But he was supposed to be an editor at the beginning. Yes, he he met E.B. White. Uh, White introduced him to Ross. Ross said he needed a managing editor. And Herber said he worked his way down to a writer. Right. Um, And, uh, you know, Thurber's constitution, I can't imagine being uh, thought of as managerial. (laughs) Um, The funny thing was, uh, and he didn't give a rat's ass because he would go in and approve his own cartoons because Ross was such a stickler, but he'd go in and forge Ross's okay on his own cartoons to get them published, which <laughs> think about that happening now. at the New How York. long did that last when he was doing that? Now, well, one year, his best year, he had 43 cartoons published in one year. Think about that in the New Yorker. Yeah. You know, I always thought there was a trait of courage for him to do a style that was so against the grain. Michael, do you think that's the case that he does one of his traits is to be brave and to kind of um, break the mold? I don't feel it was ever uh, intentional. I think it was uh, accidental. And then I think he was, you know, Althea, his first wife, was definitely, you know, a motivation to achieve. And I know he felt the competitiveness uh, from doing small works. You know, there was an ongoing diatribe, but maybe that's too nice of a word, uh, between um, uh, Thurber and some of the literary, you know, more literary figures uh, of the time. It wasn't Thomas Mann. It was uh, one of the great drunken uh, authors. It wasn't Hemingway. So he, no. he hung out with uh, F. Scott one night. Oh, hell. Who wrote uh, Help of Time in the River? Over having quiz now. Oh, God. Brain. Come on. We got to be able to do this. Um, an older producer. To the Google. It was Bob uh, Eckstein. Yeah. No, no. 
uh, Thomas Wolfe. Thomas Wolfe. Thomas Wolfe. Thomas. You know who was who was a gigantic figure, and um, actually the sun behind you, Mr. Shaw, has now turned you into. Oh uh, my! Explosion of a nova. It's beautiful. It's my. (laughs) It's great. My nether eye. So I don't think Thurber was brave as like I don't think there was a will to do it. I, I think there was. Now that this is caught on, I need to do it. I mean, he was definitely someone who was looking for um, not accreditation as much as just um, he had ambition. Yeah. He wanted to achieve. Yeah. What was his favorite creative discipline? Was it cartooning or he'd rather do short stories? What was his his, his comfort zone? He would say that he was a writer who relaxed by drawing, that that the drawing was, you know, easier for him. He didn't have to revise and uh, labor. You know, he was a genuine wordsmith, as was E.B. White. He would, you know, uh, agonize uh, with a little crucible to get that one adjective the way that it was supposed to be. I mean, the reason... I feel that so much of Thurber's work is still so readable and not quaint. Now, of course, you could say the role of men and women is vastly different. Or you could say, you know, the emphasis on uh, um, whether it's economics or fashion. You know, we're in a, we're in a completely different world. And people have often asked me, what would Thurber write about now? And and all I can ever think of is, well, whatever is fractious, whatever is um causing us irritation, uh, and he would he would that would be the source. So I, I think that his writing was uh, not labored as in belabored, but was a genuine labor, whereas drawing was infelicity. It, or, you know, it was that's the wrong word. It was, you know. A flight of caprice. It was. It was almost. Yeah, it was almost unconscious and or spontaneous. As his writing was, I would say, polished to the point of labored. And I think it was interesting that E. B. White thought he was a better cartoonist than a writer. Though I doubt he would say that to his face. <laughs> you know, just keeping um, for those keeping score at home. Uh, Mr. Thurber would be 129 years old if he was right. observing on the activities of this week and, and submitting daily cartoons. It would be interesting. At one point, I did sort of hazard a list of things. It was for a magazine, and now I can't remember what I had said. But, you know, it would have been just those things that stick in our craw, you know, today. Liza Donnelly just posted on Instagram. I'm not sure if it's in The New Yorker or not. Uh a little kid coming in from the bedroom with a teddy bear and the parents are sitting there. And he says, I think there are pundits under my bed. <laughs> and it's very good. And the idea, you know, that, that we are being uh, um, terrified and troubled by access to facts and by the purveyors of our um, news, which that was a that was genuinely a, a Thurber topic. How language has disintegrated, how um, society has succumbed to 
uh, the proliferation of, uh, of uh, naysayers and uh, truth twisters. I mean, these were <laughs> things, you know, he was on the House Un-American Activities Committee. He was, I mean, sorry, not on it. He was on the list right. of, uh, of the uh, McCarthy. So he was very involved in a uh, in a way in the 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 uh, in the atmosphere of trouble that our language and uh, the people who use language um, put us. He could yeah. he he could also be very recalcitrant when he wanted to be and really dig in his heels and like did he refuse his honorary PhD from Ohio State the first time it was offered I mean even though yes he did he did he really did stand stand on some principles what was the reason Michael he was um, uh, there was a uh, a restriction of free speech that the university had put in place, that it wasn't going to allow certain kind of speakers. And uh, he believed that um, that was, uh, I mean, I could find the passage, but lest I take the time, he he just felt that uh, no one should be uh, quelled from their uh, presentation of ideas. He felt that humor was a flag that should be thrown uh, at all times, and um, he walked away from the opportunity. This was probably during the 50s, too, which is probably the most conservative decade in American history. So he was really fighting a tide at that point. But yet he yeah, he could be a, a matchmaker. Eliza Donnelly and Michael were brought together for their admiration of James Thurber. It's what brought them together, and they're a married couple of New Yorker cartoonists. They are indeed. They are in a mile and a half of lines, each speaking of their uh, of their love of Thurber. I should also say um, the late Danny Shanahan uh, came to the Thurber house, drew many pictures while sleeping in Thurber's bed of uh, of the escapades that took place at 77 Jefferson Avenue, the night the ghost got in, the night the bed fell, the alarms that were heard in the night, the uh, fixtures that leaked electricity. You know, he has a, a little char woman uh, with little lightning bolts on the floor of the house, sweeping them into a dustpan. Um, so well, let me just clarify, you're suggesting that the Thurber house is haunted? It is haunted. I I was there. I spent the night. I could tell you things. Anywhere where you sleep is haunted, Michael. Okay. <laughs> I woke up with a big dog bite on my ass. Again? Yes, again. And I didn't pay for it. And it <laughs> doesn't um, Rex the dog, the spirit of Rex roams the Thurber house. Um, others say it was uh, a murderer who chased uh, uh, people around the yes the dining room table. Yes. Um, that... Amy Tan was one of our guests, and she brought her Yorkie, and uh, she claimed that the dogs were barking uh, while she was sleeping because there was something that was uh, spooking them. I mean, during the 20 years I was there, we had some 200 writers sleep in Thurber's uh, tiny single bed. At once? And, wait, wait. No, no, spread out. Spread out. 
Right out. Uh, and third, Fran Lebowitz mentioned earlier had uh, stayed there and of course had to make um, a total stink that she wasn't permitted to smoke, uh, <laughs> which she said Thurber smoked all his entire life. And I said, look, I know it's just, this is a house on the national register of historic places and we can't have smoking. And later, uh, both in person and in print, she wrote, yeah, and I smoked in the Thurber house. It gave me such a sense of connection to the great writer. And it's like, oh. So I have to say that uh, I've been to the Thurber house a number of times, and it's, I think everyone needs to put that on their cartoonist bucket list. And I don't even believe in bucket list. So the Thurber house is worth the trip. There's a bucket list right behind you, Michael. I see it on the wall. Oh, there it is. Um, so... <laughs> The history of the house is interesting, too, because wasn't it in a, a mental asylum at one time? Um, did I read that or did I just make it up? Let me think. Up? I think you made it up. Uh, let me. Just, OK, good. Uh, no, it, it was, you know, it was. Or a hospital or something. I, I say mean, we leave it in. The, the house yeah. itself was a modest uh, Victorian, uh, uh, but uh, but decorated in a uh, a style that was, you know, middle class, eclectic. Um, you know, 19. Lots of flocking. Flocking on the wallpaper. They were, they flocked all over the place, Bob. I'm telling you, yep. man. There was yeah. some flocking going down. No I, no, I agree with you. People have to go there. And also the Columbus Museum. Michael, I, I, we're going to get to your own publishing in a moment. But the book I'm okay. working on right now called The Most Fascinating Museums, I would love to include you as I just finished painting Columbus Museum. And I would love to include one of your stories as I collect different stories from people. And um, yeah, Mina, where am I going with this? I want to know more about your own publishing too, as you've published over 150 books. <laughs> and yeah, I just want to hear more about that too, if we can. Um, I don't even know where to begin, wherever you would like. Um, I, I'm I'm rather dizzying in that regard. Um, the Thurber House is a stone's throw from the Columbus Museum of Art. Uh, that's for starters. And uh, the Thurber Prize, which I take particular pride in, is the nation's uh, highest honor for humor writing. And that was meant to be... Uh, something that was on par with a Tony and an Oscar. And uh, it was in the era when there were honors for the best short story anthology, the best cookbooks of the year. Where was the best humor of the year? And so I convinced our board of directors that we could have this. And during my time there, The Onion and David Sedaris and um, Ian Fraser received the award and it's continued to this day in a somewhat different form. Um, but my opportunities, I mentioned that because my opportunities at the Thurber house were extraordinary. Um, they gave me leeway to, you know, unfurl the jib sheets and hoist the whatevers and go into various territories. So we inspired by Thurber did exhibits of, a variety of artists, everyone for, from Seymour Quast and Milton Glaser and Ed Corrin, uh, doing pictures of dogs that we would then auction and give the money 
to humane efforts. We were able to do uh, shows of Edward Gorey and uh, Mark Simant, one of James Thurber's illustrators. And while there, I said, we should do an anthology called the Thurber Anthology of Contemporary Humor. And uh, HarperCollins bought the idea. And I thought I would grow old editing this beautiful anthology of, you know, 600 pages of remarkable work, solicited, unsolicited, you know, just open. Uh, sure, it was tons of reading, but I loved it all. And we ended up calling the anthology Mirth of a Nation because, going back to an earlier point, the people in marketing and sales at HarperCollins said, I don't think people will know who James Thurber is. was like a, a bit of a blow, but we called it Mirth of a Nation. And uh, and then the third volume was called May Contain Nuts. Um, and, you know, they were published in a hefty, you know, inch and a half thick paperback size. Uh, but humor yeah, doesn't, you know, when it comes to... What do we want to continue? Where are our profits coming from? It wasn't from these important, I thought, books. But that's in some ways how my own writing career has evolved from springboards that the Thurber House allowed me. I did some anthologies about uh, dogs, cats, and horses, uh, many of whom tapped Thurber uh, visiting writers. Um, and my own uh, degree from Columbia in poetry, not illustration, uh, allowed me to do books you know, of poetry. And along the way, I've gone where opportunities have presented themselves. Um, so that meant there have been cookbooks and uh, there have been nonfiction books and lots of kids' books, many of which are humorous and uh, spring from that uh, well. I, I have to add a pre-erratum here because Wikipedia has you stated with 150 or so books. Your personal bio lists about 80. So you have a doppelganger in England named Michael Rosen. I know. So you get confabulated together, let alone being confused with Michael J. Pollard, the late character. So, you know, that's, My why, biggest... you, that's why you have the J. What does the J well, stand for, by the way? Jasper? It's it's Joel. Uh, but but ridiculously, Michael Rosen, English poet and kids book author, and I have mostly disambiguated, if that's a verb, ourselves. But there's Michael J. Rosen, whose highlights include Atlas of Abdominal Reconstruction. I love that book. I that's know. great. That's a must read. The cartoons are great. It's a must read. <laughs> I heard that was up. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So now, you know, we go we go about our business and uh, I've had opportunities uh, to do work helping people make books for a brief two year period. I was able to do a humor imprint and published um, a couple remarkable books. Uh, Lewis Grossberger, uh, the uh 
I'm not even sure what you would call him. A columnist did a history of of music. Uh, Francis Heaney did his remarkable book, The Holy Tango of Poetry, where he took a poet's name as an anagram and would come up with a title and then write a verse in uh, that poet's name. And then the late Richard Thompson, the fabulous Washington Post cartoonist, um, we did a great book called <laughs> Excuse me, or Richard's Almanac. Yeah, that's okay, Michael. Get yourself a drink. I could see you could use a drink. And I'll mention that Richard you choked Thompson, him up, Bob. I know. Michael, I'll just fill in the air, the dead space. Richard Thompson was one of my biggest inspirations for getting into illustration. I have his work right next to me here always to inspire me. I have it, I have his pieces laminated. From when he used to work for the National Geographic, and he, uh, he was amazing. And uh, I was wondering if you worked with. Well, there's a few people you mentioned really quickly. Do you did you do the book with John Cash? John Cash was a buddy of his who came out with a book about Richard as well. And I'm wondering if it's not the same book. No, I I did a book uh, called uh, Richard's Poor Almanac that uh, MS Press. And if you don't have a copy, I would be thrilled to send it to you. Um, and it was a collection of his sort of greatest hits, not in the series, not in the series uh, that he came to do later. But these were just um, individual cartoons like Signs of the Season or 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 Names of Potholes or I'm just trying to think of. Uh, I haven't looked at this in too long, but we met a few times, and this was before he was tragically diagnosed with uh, multiple sclerosis. It was MS. It was, yes. Yeah, MS. And, you know, the most, uh, he really was the most, if you went into a coffee shop and you saw him sitting there, you wouldn't have said, this is the person with this outrageous cleverness. Um, and his line work, Notwithstanding, he actually illustrated the book of Francis Heaney's Holy Tango of Poetry, doing portraits of Emily Dickinson and William Shakespeare and so on. Yeah. I just think his line and his, um, there's nothing Thurber-esque about it, but his... No. His, he, was, he, he was a great craftsman. He was amazing. Yes. He did, he did everything well. And when you mentioned if you ran into him at a coffee shop, the first thing you would notice is his smile. Like Ed Corrin, he was just such a gentle, welcoming man. And it was just um, he's just one of those guys who just made such an impact on so many people. He just said yes. Didn't I don't think he even realized when I first said, let's pull together and make a real book, he was rather blown away. Like, why would we want to do that? And uh, it, it was lovely working with him. And he was so happy with the book. Um, and uh, I'm so glad that subsequently another publisher was able to take that and so much of his other other sustained cartoon work, you know, with this, the serial work into, you know, a, a kind of compendium. Right, right. Michael, what are you working on now? You you have any books on the oven? You know, oddly, um, I have become friends with a three-time shuttle astronaut, Catherine Sullivan, who is also 
uh, I've dubbed her the most vertical girl in the world. She has gone to the shuttle and she's gone to the Mariana Trench's deepest. Uh, point. <laughs> Are you saying she gets around? She gets around. Okay. And uh, and so we have a book coming out in June called How to Spacewalk. She's the first American woman to, uh, you know, open the hatch and uh, go form an extravehicular activity. And she is one of eight people, wow. the only woman who has gone to Challenger Deep, which is, you know, the bottom of the bottom. So uh, that's the book we're working on right now. That sounds fantastic. What's the name of the book? Well, the one now is called How to Spacewalk. Okay. And I illustrated it um, in maybe a third of it are my illustrations, but most of them are, are NASA images, remarkable NASA images. So the editor asked me to kind of add a little more levity. So, for example, I have an illustration of how do you wash your hair in the shuttle? And so, you know, if you have long hair, unlike me, your hair is, you know, is standing straight up and the water has to come out of a little squeeze bottle, <laughs> you know, that you apply and the the mist that the droplets go up into the ventilator and get purified and turn into your drinking water. So, you know, that that's the kind of thing that, that I was able to do in drawing. I, I hope the sequel is called The Bottom of the Bottom because I cracked that open. Take a look. Bottom of the bottom. Bottom of the bottom. Okay, now you're working on another project where you're trying to discern the Thurber writings from the early talk of the towns where they were unattributed. I find that very fascinating. There are, uh, I, I hope I can persuade the estate to do this. Um, their first thought was, well, they're dated. And my response to that was, that's right. That's why they're interesting. Um, but Thurber wrote both by himself and in conjunction with others there, whether it was, you know, E.B. White or Harold Ross or, um, uh, sorry. Uh, like Parker. Uh, not Dorothy. He hasn't, he didn't oh. co-author anything with Dorothy Parker. Oh. But they were the talk of the town and they were unassigned. Right most most of the time some of the time they were assigned and there there are humor pieces there are uh observations for example he goes to a daffodil show he he meets gertrude stein he runs into uh uh the person who is uh uh it's so funny to say this that they're they're editing the telephone book and they're apparently <laughs> Petition to be the last name in the telephone book. And so there are these names like Z, Z, Y, G, E, or something. And then the next one is Z, Z, Z. And then they have to, uh, the, the person he's interviewing is saying, we have to authenticate that there's actually a person with that name and that they're not simply trying to be the last name. Uh, or are they falling asleep? Their finger on the keyboard, just yeah. hitting the. Um, well, I'm looking forward to that one. Michael, will you approach the New Yorker with that project? Is that who you have to go to? And they, the Thurber, uh, yeah. the New Yorker is very open. I believe this way, and that if Thurber wrote it, we have the rights to it. Um, we, meaning the Thurber estate, and my uh, myself as their uh, journeyman. Um, so 
I don't I don't know that it's going to take off, but I think there's plenty about it that really is remarkable. And I should have prepared yeah. and uh, found a piece that I could read from it that would just be perfect. But I didn't. Well, we I, do I have Bob, sorry. I want to read a quote from uh, uh, Michael's book, A Mile and a Half of Lines. It's by Thurber himself. And it's, he used to write on, he used to draw on cardboard, which think about that. He didn't care what he drew on. <laughs> and he said, my rejected pictures were returned with a piece of brown cardboard that oh. didn't hold its color so that the top drawing arrived looking like a platter from which a cat had been eaten, eaten, just eaten beef liver. Yeah. What a beautiful <laughs> quote. Uh, it was probably covered in scotch stains, too. I'm just going to throw that out. It always he, goes back to alcohol with you. Uh, me and Thurber, you know what they say, one martini is perfect, two is too many, and three is not enough. I, I would say that he uh, that, that was part of the culture he wrote in. You know, yes. there are plenty, plenty, plenty of scenes, uh, both written and drawn, that are of gatherings, socializing, toasting, uh, uh, cordials. Um, yes, they were the generation. They weren't the lost generation. They were the generation that stayed out too late. Exactly. That is his words. Perfectly, yes. perfectly, perfectly done. Um, and look where we are now. We're just the opposite. Not socializing. No. Spent a couple of years of staying home. Staying home. Just everyone doing just the opposite. And this is what we get. You well, while you we have you here, Michael, what do you think of the New Yorker in general? We'd love to hear your impression of the magazine as a scholar. Have you as you seen it evolve? Well, I've seen myself evolve more than I've seen the magazine evolve. I used to read it all, uh, and then I used to read some. And then I used to look at the cartoons. Then I stopped because it would, I would love, the, I would, they would just, the covers would come and I would go fabulous cover. And now I find that my own work and my own leisure, and I spend most of my time painting now and doing prints and uh, collages that, that I, my mind can't take in those, brilliant, beautiful, long, comprehensive articles. Um, but as I look at the cartoons, since this is the topic, I do think that nothing could have happened without Thurber. He really opened the floodgate to the style. There are very few, and I say this in a non-critical way at all, most of the people drawing aren't trying to render they're not trying to make a beautiful uh, uh, picture. Uh, there are some that are tighter than others, but they're more looser than, uh, than ever. And I understand that it's really a singular editorial process where you submit image, caption, yes or no. And I've spent a good number of hours with Bob Mankoff, who had a different relationship, I think, with his uh, with his team. And then, as I mentioned earlier, what I know from Thurber's time was a committee, um, a group of people who would decide, with Harold Ross being the 
the final, uh, they would decide on what might be included and what should the wording be. So there, there are many cartoons that I have from the Ohio State University's Thurber archive, where you can see an original caption and then crossed out a handwritten caption. And even then, a caption that appears later, finessed one more time. Wow. Um, I want to mention to everyone, if you want to see Michael's work, his prints and artwork is at michaeljrosen.com. I've been enjoying your work this afternoon. It's beautiful. Thank you, sir. And it's so much, your whole body of work is so impressive. And um, I'm going to go dip into some of your titles. And there's a couple of books that sound really interesting that I haven't had a chance to read. I'm going to go check out. I think the same can be said for me. I, I feel like I'm uh, meeting a whole a whole group of people that I, I need to catch up on. But I, I love that part. I think, I think the sad, one of the things Thurber would have written about, and I feel enough of a kindred soul, partly because I can't really see out of one of my eyes after the cataract surgery. So I've taken him to a not exactly heart, but to, you know, brain is uh, we do not experience enough in person uh, just limiting ourselves to Instagram and Facebook and TikTok and feeds and the card catalog and going into the library and seeing, yes, here's the book I was looking for, but look at this book next to it and look at all, oh my God, I had no idea. And so uh, that rich repository of knowledge, uh, I know we can use chat, AI and and any number of things, but the randomness that comes to us from an eagerness to learn, a curiosity to be surprised is so profound. And, and I, I see young people, oh my God, that sounded so old. I see young people like not even caring. Actually, I should say this by way of a closure. I went to a, a, a pizza place and got a salad for lunch today. And there was a big sign in the window that someone had, had handwritten, uh, no senior tag. Mm -hmm. So I, I go get my salad and I say, I don't, what am I, am I, are you, am I, are we saying that you don't want seniors, like people my age and uh, uh, what is the, she said, well, you know, we don't want we don't want seniors in here with their squirt guns and their super, you know, super shooters. Doing your high like, school. And I'm like, yes. So, no, I'm not even there. I mean, in my head, I'm like, so you mean older people are coming in with squirt guns and ruining oh. your lunch traffic? And she said, um, high school? Skin tags. I <laughs> so I, I had I had no no idea, but I but I do think that. Um, that there was not a good transition there, and I'm to blame. So I have to say, encountering a Thurber cartoon in person is a otherworldly experience too, since they were just, they were huge, they were weird, they were on the wall, they were on cardboard, yes. they were black, uh, white chalk on black paper. I mean, it, it, you're, it's amazing what he did to get an image, you know, on paper or anywhere. If you have a chance to go, you can make an appointment at Ohio State University and you can go in the rare books and archives. And, you know, some of the pieces early on are, you know, 
they're on eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper or they're on little you know notepads but eventually you know they get to poster size and they get to be done in uh grease pencil and chalk on black paper and i mean there was there was a definite desire that he did not want to give up doing this work and he often tells the story as does rosemary his daughter that you know at the after he lost all of his sight in the early 50s he could still draw and there's a famous life magazine a photo essay in which he's using a light pen right and drawing a thurber dog in the air and rosemary or her mother would dot the eyeball they wouldn't make the eyeball because he could make a contour line to make the entire dog but have no sense of where where would the eye be in relationship to that wow well michael we want to thank you for staying with us um hope this wasn't too painful no i don't want to keep any longer but this has all been really fascinating and you've been a wonderful guest Thank you so much. It's an Thank honor. you, Mr. Rosen. It's an honor, gentlemen. I mean, I've, I <laughs> I feel like I was able to to brandish the the Thurber flag. Um, you know, I felt like Alistair Cook there for just a second. Did you? Yeah. So. <laughs> That's actually, the- if you can find it, I mean, it's there on YouTube. The interview from Omnibus of Alistair yeah. uh, and James is really something. I watched it 17 times in the Thurber house, but I couldn't get out, so. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> thank you again, both. Yes. Thank you. And uh, I just want to thank all the listeners. A really uh, quick shout out. Jason Chatfield has a new book out called You're Not a Real Parent Until. Um, a plug for my own magazine, The Bob. It's... Um, a Substack newsletter that's getting a lot of uh, traction. Seth Silverman and other people have been subscribing. So check that out. And uh, again, until next time, thanks a lot. Michael, Marty, thanks, thank Bob. you. Thanks, Marty. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.